Friday, the 29th of September, 1935, the picturesque town of Moffat in Dumfrieshire, Scotland, a thriving spa town known for its healing waters and links to the wool trade. This At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Small town was thrown into chaos after a dismembered arm was spotted on the bank of a stream by a passing walker in the early hours. When police arrived on the scene, they were shocked at what they uncovered. They found a jigsaw puzzle that nobody wanted to piece together. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it's not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week. So if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Jack the Ripper, The German Suspect, which is a documentary about the infamous serial killer Jack the Ripper and new evidence that emerged that led investigators to an improbable suspect, a German sailor. Can detectives finally identify the world's most famous serial killer? Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch Jack the Ripper, The German Suspect. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I've said before, new documentaries like Jack the Ripper, The German Suspect, are added to Magellan TV weekly, so do not sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the links below. Hi everyone, it's Editing Josh here. I just wanted to jump on to say that there is a quick offer from Magellan TV for the Christmas holidays, and that is you can buy one, get one free gift card for an annual membership to Magellan TV by clicking the link in the description. It's a special holiday offer, so be sure to grab that great Christmas present. And thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Now, back to the case. On the morning of Friday the 29th of September 1935, Susan Johnson was on a morning walk, the kind of walk she'd taken many times before, though when she looked out over the parapet of an old stone bridge around two miles outside of the Dumfrieshire town of Moffat, 
she would spot something that caught her eye. At first, Susan saw nothing out of the ordinary in the scene that lay before her, but after a few seconds, she spotted something odd. On the edge of the stream, near the rocky bank, her eyes caught sight of a bundle rocking slightly in the currents of the water. The bundle stopped Susan in her tracks. Sticking out of the side of the bundle was the unmistakable shape of a human arm. The fabric had snagged on a rock at the edge of the stream, stopping it from being dragged further downstream by the currents of the water. Susan was frozen in place in a state of complete shock, and after what felt like an eternity passing, she finally managed to pull herself from the fight-or-flight instinct that had taken over her body. She eventually moved away from the bridge edge and quickly made her way back into town to tell someone what she had seen. When the police made their way out to the stream, they confirmed that the remains were human and they began their sweep of the area. The police intensely searched the stream and the surrounding ravines and what the investigators found truly shocked them. Altogether, the police found around 70 pieces of human remains, including two skulls, thigh bones, legs, sections of flesh and a human torso and pelvis. All of the pieces found were in an advanced state of decomposition. These remains were wrapped in bedsheets, children's clothing, pillowcases and newspapers. The newspapers found were two editions of the Daily Herald dated the 6th and 31st of August 1935, an edition of the Sunday Graphic dated the 15th of September 1935, and undated portions of the Sunday Chronicle. After the police have recovered these remains and had examined them, they transported the remains to a local mortuary a few days later, on Tuesday the 1st of October 1935. With around 70 pieces to work through and catalogue, the forensics team working on this case painstakingly examined each and every part of the remains. And as a result of this painstaking examination, the team discovered that these remains belonged to two different individuals. At first, these were suspected to have been the remains of a man and a woman, but after closer examination, they were found to have actually been the remains of two women. According to the forensic scientist working on the case, these two women were of notably different heights and ages, and suggested that they were not related. It was clear to the medical examiners that, in an attempt to hide the identity of the victims, the murderer had heavily mutilated the bodies. The murderer, or murderers, had removed the eyes, ears, skin, lips, and several teeth from both victims. All of this was suspected to have been done to make identification via facial recognition, dental records, or composite drawings impossible. Along with the extensive mutilation across both victims' bodies, the forensic scientists deduced that these crimes had been committed with a surgical knife, as the lacerations had been too clean to have been inflicted with either a saw or an axe. This was further cemented by the fact that the victim's fingertips had been removed with surgical precision, along with any possible distinguishable features, such as operational or vaccination scars. It was clear that whoever had done this knew what they were doing. Following the first medical examination of the remains being concluded at the Moffat Mortuary, the bodies of the two women were transported to the anatomy department of the University of Edinburgh. Upon arrival at the University of Edinburgh, the bodies were determined to have been in such a state of decomposition that they needed to be treated to prevent any further decomposition from taking place. 
The bodies were also infested with maggots, which were accelerating the decomposition process. An autopsy was then conducted at the university, and during this formal autopsy, two more bundles of remains were actually found back in the river where the bodies of the two women had been previously found, and these contained two forearms with the hands still attached. Now these hands still had their fingers attached, which allowed the forensic scientists to obtain a full set of fingerprints for one of the women. Unfortunately, despite their best efforts, these fingerprints didn't hit a match in any of the police records, so the remains were unable to be identified. The forensic scientists working on this case determines that it would have taken the murderer at least eight hours to conduct this kind of damage to the bodies. Because of the way in which the bodies had been mutilated, the police and forensic examiner deduced that these murders were likely to have been done by someone who had a medical background. Quote, Every identification mark had been skillfully removed. I suggest that both women had died a very violent death, and that the dismemberment had been done by someone who had medical knowledge and surgical skill. The examiners also told police that the murderer made a mistake in choosing the river that they had chosen to dispose of the bodies in. There were two rivers in the area where the remains had been dumped, and it turns out that the other river where the bodies hadn't been found had actually been overflowing due to heavy rainfall at the time. This meant that if they had chosen that river to dump the remains in, the remains would have likely ended out at sea due to the heavy rain and would have likely never been discovered. To help the police figure out more of a timeline for these deaths, a forensic expert in entomology, which is the study of insects, was brought onto the case. This expert was asked to look at the maggots found on the bodies, and from this, he determined that the maggots were 12 to 14 days old. This gave the police a time frame from when the bodies had been dumped in the river, so the investigators started working backwards from this point. With the remains yielding no answers, though, to the detectives' questions, the police began to look into the items that the bodies had been wrapped in. These items consisted of bedsheets, children's clothing, pillowcases, and newspapers. It was through these items that the police began to further unearth the mystery behind this case. The newspapers used to wrap the bodies were dated for Sunday the 15th of September 1935, and in a breakthrough for the police, it was a special edition of the Sunday Graphic that was only sold in a specific area. This newspaper was exclusive to the Lancaster area of England. This was what the police were waiting for, a solid lead which would get them one step closer to the killer. With all of these clues slowly falling into place, the police could finally establish a profile for who the killer was, a criminal profile. And this criminal profile detailed the killer as being someone who was a medically trained person, someone who lived or worked in the Lancaster area, and most likely had children and a wife due to the bedding and children's clothing that had been used to wrap the remains. Armed with this information, the police made their way to Lancaster to work through any more leads that they could find. Investigators focused their efforts on recent missing persons reports filed within the northwest of England on or shortly after Sunday the 15th of September. A few different reports were looked into and the investigators were able to narrow their search down to two reports that could align with their investigations. These were the reports of Isabella Ruxton and Mary Jane Rogerson. These two women were not related in any way, but they knew each other. You see, Mary Jane was the housemaid for the Ruxton family. 
The Ruxton family were well known in the area, as the patriarch of the family was a well-known physician who practiced in the area. His name was Dr. Buck Ruxton. Buck Ruxton was born in Bombay, India on Tuesday the 21st of March 1899. He was originally named Buktar Chompa Rustamji Rantaji Hakim, and I'm sure I've just pronounced that completely wrong and butchered it. I'll put it on screen now. I couldn't find any way online of trying to figure out how to pronounce it. So I apologize for not being able to pronounce that, but that's what he was originally named. And he was part of a wealthy middle-class family. He had a good upbringing and did well in school. By the time he was a teen, he had decided that he wanted to become a doctor. With the financial support of his parents, he attended the University of Bombay and attained a bachelor's of medicine in 1922. In the following year, he gained a Bachelor of Surgery. After leaving the university, he was quickly hired at a hospital in Bombay, where he specialised in medicine, midwifery and gynaecology. Following on from his time in the hospital, he joined the Indian Medical Service, where he would be deployed to Basra and Baghdad. When he returned from deployment, he married a woman named Motabai in an arranged marriage, organised by his family. Unfortunately, this marriage didn't play out well, and in 1926, Buck relocated to Britain without his wife. He concealed all evidence of his marriage when he arrived in Britain, and was quick to become familiar with various women. This move to Britain was to further his medical career, and with the financial assistance from his family and the Bombay Medical Service, he attended London's University College Hospital. The next year, in 1927, Book moved to Edinburgh to begin studying for a fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons. Book ended up failing the entrance exam for this fellowship, but the General Medical Council still authorised his practice of medicine in the United Kingdom. This was based upon his years of hands-on experience while working at the Bombay Hospital back in India and his time in the Indian Medical Service. While in Edinburgh, Book finally formalised his name change by deed poll from his birth name, which I'll put on screen again because I'm not going to try and pronounce it again, to Book Ruxton. Throughout this time spent in Edinburgh, Book became fond of a young woman who worked in the cafe that he frequented. This woman was called Isabella Van S. And the pair were smitten with each other, and would spend time together while Isabella was working, sneaking kisses in passing moments. While this courtship was blossoming between Book and Isabella, Isabella was struggling within a marriage that she was stuck in. Isabella was still legally married to a Dutchman that she had married a few years prior, and unfortunately for Isabella, this was not a good or happy marriage. She and her husband didn't get along, and after discussions between the couple, Isabella started to again go by her maiden name of Kerr and present herself as a single woman, and her husband did the same. Both of them hoping to find comfort and acceptance from others who they were more compatible with. This worked out perfectly for Buck and Isabella, as they were both still legally married, but they were able to pursue a relationship together without any repercussions. The pair dated for around a year before Book was required to relocate to England to work alongside another doctor in London, bear in mind that he was in Scotland in Edinburgh. And when he made the trip down to London, he was joined by Isabella. She had decided that she had nothing tying her to Edinburgh and she could start fresh in London with Book. The couple went from strength to strength and were often out together with friends. They were truly living their best lives in the capital. After living together in London for a year, the couple welcomed their first child into the world in 1929. 
they were delighted to have a daughter who they named Elizabeth. The family of three lived in harmony in London, going on day trips into the country and enjoying the life of a middle-class family on a doctor's wage. Then, in 1930, the Ruxton family relocated from London to Lancashire in pursuit of Buck's working wishes. He decided that he wanted to work for himself rather than for other doctors. After moving to Lancashire, Buck decided to establish a medical practice of his own within his family home, a newly bought property at 2 Dalton Square. Buck was known as a diligent and compassionate GP, general practitioner, who was well respected and popular within the community. He had put a lot of effort into assimilating into British life and was known to waive fees on occasion when he knew patients couldn't afford to pay him. With this recognition came popularity. Book was well-loved in the community and no one had a bad word to say about the Ruxtons. They were the perfect family. In 1931, after living in Lancaster for over a year, the Ruxton family added a new member, with a second daughter born, who they named Diane. Two years after this, in 1933, they finally welcomed a son to the family, who they named William. This same year, the family employed a live-in housemaid to help care for the children and to help with housework. This housemaid was called Mary Jane Rogerson. The investigators on the case were floored after speaking to people who knew the Ruxtons. They couldn't believe that the remains found could be those of Isabella and Mary. The family was held in such a high regard and everyone knew and loved them. It wasn't until the investigators discussed this theory with members of the local police that this picture-perfect family started to seem less than perfect. Cracks began to appear. Despite his esteemed reputation within the community, the local police spoke of the relationship between Buck and Isabella as being rocky. Over the years, Buck had become suspicious of Isabella and believed that she was cheating on him. Behind closed doors, he would explode into fits of rage, regularly throwing items across rooms and assaulting Isabella. The couple had several large quarrels over the years, which resulted in police intervention occasionally having to settle the arguments at the police station with officers present. A few times during these arguments, Buck's anger would prompt Isabella to pack her belongings up and return to Edinburgh with their three children. This was Isabella's way of ensuring her children's safety after the violence between the couple became too volatile. After long phone calls between the pair, Isabella and the children always returned. Shockingly, the local police also informed investigators that Isabella had attempted suicide by inert gas asphyxiation in 1932, and unfortunately for Isabella, this resulted in her suffering a miscarriage of what would have been her fourth child. Despite the police's previous interventions, it wasn't until 1933 when they found out about Buck beating Isabella after she came into the station and reported it herself. After she had filed this report, the police visited the Ruxton home to investigate the claims. Book denied the assault charges, stating that he would never lay a finger on her, despite his own allegations that she had been unfaithful to him. Despite these reports from Isabella, she returned to the Ruxton home and never followed through with the investigations. That within itself is a classic example of the manipulation that can take place in a domestic violence situation. 
especially given the year in the 1930s. One incident in April of 1933 saw a policeman called out to the family home. While this police officer was taking their statements over what had happened, Book told him, Sergeant, I feel like murdering two persons. My wife is going out to meet a man. In September of 1935, Isabella travelled to Edinburgh to visit one of her sisters, who still lived in the area. And on this trip to Scotland, Isabella was accompanied by another family, who the Ruxtons were friends with. These were the Edmondsons. Now, Book himself didn't accompany Isabella on this trip, as he had prior commitments in his doctor's practice, which he couldn't get out of. While Isabella was away, Book was filled with rage and jealousy. He believed that Isabella was cheating on him with Robert Edmondson, and that this trip was just a ruse for them to be able to continue their affair in public, in a place where people didn't know him. When Book was asked about this trip at a later date, he was adamant that Isabella and Robert would have been sharing a room in their hotel, and that she might not have even visited her sister. Instead, he believed she would have chosen to go on a romantic trip with Robert around Edinburgh, but hotel records found by the police would later confirm that each adult on the trip had been booked into separate rooms in the hotel. Once Isabella returned from this trip to Edinburgh, the relationship between her and Book was on its last legs. The last known sightings of Mary and Isabella were on Saturday the 14th of September 1935. Mary's family, the Rogersons, had seen her when she visited the family home for a catch-up that morning. Isabella was last seen by her sisters. They had been together in Blackpool on the evening of the 14th, after they had watched the Blackpool Illuminations together. The Rogersons were used to not seeing their daughter for days at a time. After all, she was a live-in maid for the Ruxtons, so she didn't return to the family home in the evenings. Though, when ten days had passed and no one in the family had heard from her, they were starting to become a bit worried. So when Book Ruxton turned up on their doorstep on Tuesday the 24th of September, saying that their daughter had an affair with one of the boys in town and had run away to have an abortion, they were shocked. This was very peculiar behaviour for their daughter, and they were saddened that she didn't come to them for help and instead confided in Isabella. Book told the Rogersons not to call the police and that their daughter would return soon. Eased with this explanation, they agreed with Book and waited for their daughter to return. That very same day, Book visited the police station and told the police that Isabella had, quote, once again deserted him to find comfort in another man leaving him alone with their three children. A few days later, on the 1st of October 1935, the Rogersons visited the Ruxton practice to talk to Book about their daughter's return. He told the family that Isabella and Mary had broken into his safe and stolen £30 from him before they had both left the house. But once they had run out of money, they would surely return. Something I don't quite understand about this is that Book is a doctor, and if he knew that within this story, if he knew that um, Mary needed an abortion, then why didn't he step in to assist and help? That's just a side note. Unsatisfied with this, with this explanation, the Rogersons went to the police to file a missing persons report for their daughter. It wasn't until the 4th of October that Book filed a missing persons report for Isabella. Despite all of this happening, there was no more information or evidence to establish where Isabella and Mary had gone. That was until the investigators from Scotland had made their way to Lancaster to search for evidence to identify the two sets of remains. 
Despite all the character statements about Book from the people that knew him, which claims the Rookstons were the picture-perfect family, the investigators began closing in on the killer of these two women. All signs pointed towards the killer being Book Rookston. It was no coincidence that two women were found dead, killed with medical accuracy, in the same time frame that a doctor's wife and housemaid both go missing. A few days after the Rogersons filed the missing persons reports, the police were at their front door. Hoping that they had found their daughter safe and sound, the Rogersons were quick to answer the front door. But unfortunately, the police were there to see if they could identify some of the clothing that had been used to wrap up the remains that they were trying to identify. Mary's mother was easily able to identify a blouse with a distinct patchwork repair beneath one armpit, as she had been the one to make the repair for her daughter. The second item of clothing she was asked to identify was a child's romper, which was also found at the crime scene. Now Mary's mother was unable to identify this, but told the investigators to ask another lady who knew the Ruxton's children better than she did. When this second woman was asked about the child's romper, she confirmed that it did belong to the Ruxtons, as she was the one who had bought it for them. With all of this evidence against Buck Ruxton, the police were sure that they had found their killer. This was finally solidified when they gained access to the Ruxton home and found it in a state of disarray. The carpets had been removed and a pile of burnt fabric material had been left in the garden. A bathtub was extensively stained with yellow discoloration, which the police believed to have been a reaction between blood and cleaning solution. On Saturday the 12th of October 1935, the police arrested Buck Ruxton for the murders of Isabella Ruxton and Mary Jane Rogerson. Book was extensively questioned by the police about his whereabouts between the 14th and 29th of September, and he ended up giving the police a handwritten document titled My Movements. He told them that these were his exact movements during those times, and he then gave a voluntary statement based upon what had been written. In these interviews, he denied ever visiting Scotland, despite leaving Edinburgh years before. He was unable to explain how his car's registration had been reported by a young cyclist knocked over in the Cumbrian town of Kendal on Tuesday the 17th of September. The registration number was written down in the cyclist's pocketbook after the driver of the car failed to stop at the scene of the accident. The police suggested to Book that this accident gave them strong circumstantial evidence, as the incident had occurred in the area that was en route to Lancaster from Moffat, which was where the bodies had been found but Book strongly denied these claims. Book was unable to explain why the police found traces of blood on the stairs, railings, and various carpets throughout his family home, as well as traces of human fat and body tissue being discovered in the drains of the property. Book Ruxton couldn't believe what he was being told, and was adamant that he had nothing to do with these murders. Along with these stains being found in the home, the police found that there was a forensic match between the human hands found at the bridge in Moffat and items that were known to be used by Mary Rogerson in the Rookston home. So with no solid explanation as to why all of these pieces of evidence were lining up and stacking up against him, Book Rookston was formally charged with the murder of Mary Jane Rogerson at 7.20am on Sunday the 13th of October 1935. Quote, I intend to prefer a very serious charge against you. You are charged that between the 14th and 29th of September 1935, you did felonously and with malice aforethought 
Kill one Mary Jane Rogerson, said Lancaster Chief Constable Henry J. Van. When the charges were read to Buck in the police station, he was appalled, saying, quote, Most empathetically not, of course not, the farthest thing from my mind. What motive and why? What are you talking about? As a quick side note, I find it, I find it so funny how people used to speak. I just, the vocabulary is just so different to how it is now. It just makes me giggle a little bit. Even though a match was finally confirmed to have been made between one set of the remains and with Mary Rogerson, the second body had still not been confirmed to have been connected to Isabella Ruxton. With nowhere else to go, the detectives turned their eyes to a new and emerging forensic technique. This case would be the first case to use forensic anthropology in an effort to solve the case in the UK. According to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, over the past century, physical anthropologists have developed methods to evaluate bones to understand people who lived in the past. Such questions might include, was this individual male or female? How old were they when they died? How tall were they? Were the people in good or poor general health? Forensic anthropology involves the application of these same methods to modern cases of unidentified human remains. Through the established methods, a forensic anthropologist can aid law enforcement in establishing a profile of the unidentified remains. The profile includes sex, age, ancestry, height, length of time since death, and sometimes the evaluation of trauma observed on bones. Within the context of this case, the forensic anthropology used was a method in which they took an x-ray of a victim's skull and superimposed it onto a photograph of the suspected victim. This was achieved with two different images of Isabella, which allowed the police to positively identify the remains as Isabella Ruxton. Based on these images, on Tuesday the 5th of November 1935, the police were also able to formally charge Book Ruxton with the murder of his wife, Isabella Ruxton. Book was detained in the police station and held in custody until his trial. The Ruxton trial started on the 2nd of March 1936 and lasted for 11 days. There were multiple witness testimonies brought forward by the prosecution during this trial, yet Book Ruxton was the sole witness to testify on the behalf of his defence. The bathtub from the Ruxton home was even brought into the courtroom to be shown to the jury as evidence. While Buck was adamant that he was innocent during the trial, the prosecution showed the court damning evidence. A written confession from Buck himself, which was dated the 14th of October 1935. By the end of the trial, the jury reached their verdict. Buck Ruxton was found guilty of the murder of Isabella Ruxton and Mary Rogerson and was subsequently sentenced to death. Following the sentencing, Buck Ruxton did file an appeal against his conviction, but it was dismissed for being, quote, insufficient as to even remotely suggesting. Not really sure what that means, but I just think that the people, the appeal board was, didn't see that there was any grounds for an appeal. On the morning of the 12th of May, 1936, Buck Ruxton was hanged at HMP Manchester. In the early hours leading up to his execution, Book wrote a letter to his defence counsel, thanking them for their help while still maintaining his act of innocence. Quote, I know that in a few hours I shall be going to meet my maker, but I say to you, sir, I am entirely innocent of this crime. Despite a petition from residents from Lancaster urging the judge for clemency for Ruxton, a petition that had garnered over 10,000 signatures, Book was still hanged for his crimes a hanging that saw masses of people crowding outside the prison. This case was one for the history books, 
and even had a small song written about it, quote, Red stains on the carpet, red stains on the knife. Oh, Dr. Book Ruxton, you murdered your wife. Then Mary, she saw you. You thought she would tell. So Dr. Book Ruxton, you killed her as well. The bathtub from the Ruxton home, which had been used as evidence in the trial, can still be seen today as a water trough for the mounted police at Hutton Police HQ. This case, now famously referred to as the Jigsaw Murders, also marks the first time entomological science was successfully used and aided an investigation. Cast your mind back to the use of the maggots earlier in this case. These maggots helped the police to learn how long the bodies had been in the water for, which ultimately helped establish the times of Isabella and Mary's disappearances. These maggots were such a monumental moment in the world of entomological science that they were actually pickled and are now stored in the insect archives at the London Natural History Museum. A bit strange. And that's everything that I have for you in this case. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new true crime video, just like this one. Special thank you once again to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to take advantage of their limited holiday promotion by using the links below. That's not even dirty. Grrr! That's never bass. I'm just gonna... I'm ending things. My fucking villager just died. I now also stream on Twitch, so if you want to join me playing games like Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, or even deep diving into true crime cases or mystery rabbit holes, head on over to twitch.tv forward slash joshmiles and join me. I should be live when this video is published, so join me in discussing the case over on my Twitch channel. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support.